Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me, please, this morning to, to Luke uh, chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. a lovely chapter in, 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 in Luke. It uh, gives us three parables. The Lord gives us three parables. Uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and if you will, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. I want for us this morning to focus uh, particularly on the first parable. And uh, really, we're set up uh, with why uh, the Lord gives this parable by the comment, the acerbic, uh, snidey comment, if you will, of the, uh, the, the, the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, we see it at the start of the chapter. Uh, all the tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus. He was a man who uh, was uh, magnetic, if you will. People were drawn to him because here was a man who was unlike any other. He spoke with authority, the things of God, and uh, he treated people like no other, such tenderness and compassion. And that... Uh, formed, uh, it caused jealousy to rise from those who were uh, the religious people of the day and they felt unsettled by uh, what he said and how he acted and uh, they complained, they think in some respects they've sort of got one over on him as it were, uh, they complain, they mutter as it's elsewhere described this man receives sinners and eats with them uh, in their eyes, they were condemning Jesus, that he was uh, mixing with, as it were, the waifs and strays of society, the known sinners, those who were evidently lost, those who were perhaps not polite and uh, uh, um, uh, socially acceptable, those whose lives perhaps were evidently immoral and whose uh, lives, as it were, the wheels had, had come off. Well, in their eyes, they were condemning Jesus. In actual fact, they were condemning their own ignorance. They were showing their ignorance of themselves and their position, and they were showing their ignorance of the Lord Jesus and his character. The Lord Jesus is God. The Bible clearly tells us he's the second person of the Trinity. And if we were to have two categories two groups as it were and in the one group we would have those that are created and in the other group we would have those who are uncreated then God alone would be in that uncreated group God alone is uncreated everything and everybody else is created uh, Revelation 4 11, you are worthy O Lord to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So we were created by God. Everything has been created by God. But we as a race, mankind, were created by God, but we are different to everything else, to all other creatures. We are different. Uh, in Genesis, right at the start, we've re learned, had a reference from the last book in the Bible, reference from the first book in the Bible, Genesis 1.26. God says, let us, there we are, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are special. God created us with a soul. We're made in his likeness. And we were created, as the catechism tells us, in order to bring God glory and to enjoy him. He's the source of all true happiness. The irony is people today will be looking for happiness and they will perhaps be going on a day trip somewhere and they'll enjoy creation, but they won't enjoy the creator who has given them that creation. And here today, church isn't a duty to which we have to go to. This is a source of happiness to meet with fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer this morning, then you're not truly happy. This is the secret of true happiness. Sometimes Christians hide it well. But this is the secret of true happiness, to know God and to enjoy him. And the first man created, Adam, he was created with age. He was created about, I don't know, about 30. He was created and formed. And there he was created with age. But he was the first man. And he was instructed by God what to do and what not to do in the Garden of Eden. And he was warned, wasn't he? You know the the history of it. He was warned not to take of the fruit of the tree of 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 knowledge of good and evil. And uh, he was warned. What would happen? In that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But he was tempted. He was tempted to disobey God. He was tempted to go his own way. He was tempted to not listen to God and to think of himself instead. And he fell to that temptation. And he failed to do what God told him to do. And he did what God commanded him not to do. We read uh, that he, essentially, he put himself first and he lost his joy. He lost his happiness in doing so. He fell. He robbed God of his glory and he robbed himself of his joy. That fall, that great tragic fall. And we all fell through him. Romans 5 verse 12 uh, reads this. Through one man... Through one man, think of it, think of the consequences of Adam's action. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. The Bible tells us our condition then is a universal one. You see, these Pharisees thought they were in a different situation to these sinners, these open sinners, these immoral people. They thought... They were in a different situation. They were wrong. The Bible puts those in all one big pot. Romans 3 again. There is none righteous. The great equaler. There is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Pharisees saw their problem as what they did. So if they could reform what they did or didn't do and and keep to their guide, then they would be okay. They misdiagnosed the problem. The problem isn't just what we do, it's what we are. Our position now to what Adam uh, was first is unrecognisable. Adam was created to have fellowship with God. We are out of fellowship with God. There is that great divide, that great gulf. 
That occurred when we went, chose to go our own way. We divorced ourselves from God. So we are no longer in communion with him. Adam was created with spiritual life. The soul had union with God. It no longer does, naturally. We no longer have spiritual life. We are spiritually dead, the Bible tells us. Adam was able to please God in his obedience. We can no longer please God. Think of that. The Pharisees thought that what they were doing was pleasing God. The Bible tells us even our very best bits are as filthy rags in God's sight. It's as though somebody would put on a deodorant full of body odour in order to mask body odour. The utter folly of it. The very best bits that we think would be worthy of God's commendation are the very things that insult God, are the very things that God finds obnoxious and abhorrent in his sight. Adam was in a condition of um, security. He was in a condition of fellowship with God. He was right with God. We aren't. We're lost. We're at odds with God, naturally. That's our condition. That's our position. That's our state before Almighty God today. The Pharisees viewed the problem simply as things as they do or don't do. If you will, they had managed to boil out the goodness of God's law. God's law was given to show us his holy character, the depth of his character, the profundity of the holiness, the majesty, the set-apartness, the cleanness, if you will, the purity of God. And the Pharisees had so boiled the goodness out of it that they had kind of made God into some sort of um, creature who, was kind of accept, who would accept uh, our, our efforts. They had, um, they had so brought God down to their level that they themselves were filled with pride. That's why they turned their noses up at their fellow man. That's why they looked uh, and despised their fellow creature. Because they were filled with a sense of pride about who they were. And instead of the Lord doing what it should have done, which is bringing them to a point of utter desperation, where they see before God's holy character what they are, instead of a mirror giving a true reflection, warts and all, they had this kind of tinted mirror that gave them a false view of themselves. So God isn't so great. They themselves aren't so bad. The gulf isn't so wide. It's all okay, really. And they missed the, the point. The God's law, God's character showing us that we are in a hopeless and a helpless situation. That uh, we ourselves, we all of us are in the same boat. We can't have contempt for our fellow man because we are equally all in the miry clay. We are all in the quicksand. We are all in a lost condition and God is unreachable. He's so holy. He's so pure. He's so perfect that we cannot possibly begin to ascend to reach Him because His law condemns us. It shows us every day that we are falling short. We are missing the mark. We cannot for one day pass the exam, pass the bar. We cannot for one moment reach the standard that God requires, which is utter perfection. They had completely missed the point. They'd lost the plot, as it were. And so we're brought to this parable. Jesus gives this parable 
And when we have this in the background, in our minds, what Christ says in this parable is absolutely stunning. It's absolutely outstanding. You see, if what the Bible tells us is true, if for each one of us in this room, our natural state is that we are lost before a holy God, and if the character of God is such that he isn't one who will just wink at sin, turn a blind eye and say, it's okay, you can come in and let's sweep it under the carpet. If God is so holy that his holiness is brighter than the shining sun, that the shining sun is as a kind of energy-saving light bulb by comparison to the glory of God, that eternal weight of glory of God. If that is our situation, if there is such, this, such a great gulf between God and man, that sin has so come in and divorced us from God, if that is our situation, then why would Jesus, the Son of God, eat with sinners? Why would he receive sinners? Why would he welcome sinners? Well, Jesus gives us something of his character, and he doesn't just welcome, we'll see, he goes much further. You see, he was there, he did welcome sinners. You have those, those uh, episodes in, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the leper coming to him and where everybody else recoiled because here was this unclean man, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he do? He reaches out and he touches him. These, these acts of showing his character to people that just blew people away. What does it mean then? He welcomes sinners. Well, he welcomes sinners. He doesn't just tolerate them. Think of it now, friends. Today we're coming and we're coming to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ and we're sinners. It doesn't just mean that he tolerates us. It doesn't just mean that he will allow us to a certain point. He is ready to receive. He is ready to welcome. Think of the difference between somebody welcoming you into their house and somebody opening the door and allowing you uh, time. There's all the difference in the world. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, even though he is holy, even though he cannot look upon sin, even though he is angry with the wicked every day, and he burns in his anger, a just anger, a righteous anger, and it doesn't go away, even though he views even the slightest of sins as completely abhorrent, you wouldn't eat your sandwiches off a floor where cows have been. I used to work in the dairy industry. And if your sandwiches fell on the, on the floor where cows had been, you wouldn't have a five-second rule. They'd go in the bin. You wouldn't bring muddy foot uh, wellies into a science laboratory that was very cultured, that was having, growing these cultures of uh, bacteria and things like that. God is so pure and so clean, it's incomprehensible. And to think that we would sin against God, to think that we would be angry, to think that we would lust, to think that we would um, have evil thoughts. How possibly can God welcome us? But that's the truth. He welcomes us. He receives us. And he gives us this parable to help us to understand his mindset, his character. You see, what does he say? He says this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, he teaches, a parable, remember, has one main point. He teaches, uh, he teaches us, uh, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? You see that one sheep? Well, to the person who isn't bothered about sheep, well, it's just one, never mind. You, you take your losses. But to the shepherd, to the one whose sheep they are, that one sheep matters. He values that one sheep. 
He doesn't say it doesn't matter. He, it matters. And it matters so much that he's willing to park those other 99 sheep, if you can park sheep, and he's willing to go and seek that lost sheep. He's willing to not only welcome and receive sinners, the Bible tells us he's actually come to seek sinners. He's come to seek us out. How do we see this? Well, we see this most wonderfully in the incarnation, don't we? The Son of God in the glories, in the splendors, in the heavens. And he leaves the purity, the holiness, the glory, the wonder of heaven. And he comes into this world. He's born of a virgin. He takes on human flesh. He becomes a man. Holy God, yet holy man. That glorious mystery which faith alone can understand. He comes in the glory of man, in the, in, in the form of a man. And he lives in this sin-sick, this cursed world. Why? Well, later on in Luke he says, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's coming to put right what Adam and us did wrong. That first covenant, that promise of commitment between God and man, man wrecks it, breaks the covenant. So Jesus Christ in the fullness of God's plan, that's gradually revealed to us in the, in the scriptures. He comes and he has this rescue plan and it's a rescue plan, it's a new covenant, it's a better covenant because it's between God and God. Between God and man's new representative, the second Adam. The first Adam had all the things going for him, had everything going for him. He had paradise, he lived in paradise, and let he failed. He wrecked the job. The next Adam, the last Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes into a horrendous situation. It's a world that is cursed. And yet, despite all the bombardments of sin and temptation that the evil one could throw at him, despite all the suffering, all the, 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 the difficulties that he finds himself in this world, he Gains the victory. Why? Because he comes to seek. Why? Because he values us. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful in a society that only values the successful? In a society that casts off those and pays lip service perhaps to, to disabled people? In a society perhaps that pays lip service to, to those who are old? Uh, once you hit 40 seemingly, then that's it, isn't it? Life is over. Maybe it's 50, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 70 now. But the point is, there's this downward... Oh, you see the value. What value can you be to a society? Why do they want to get us to work? Well, we can bring them value. Oh, but you see, Christ values us. The value of a soul, you see. We are precious in God's sight. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, this sin needs to be dealt with. There's this barrier, this obstacle between us and God. But Christ, but God, values us. He loves us. You are greatly valued this morning. Never mind L'Oreal because you're worth it. They want your money. But Christ says you're worth it. And he proves it. He proves it by leaving the splendor, the glory of heaven. He proves it by, and the Father proves it by sending his only begotten son. The apple of his eye. The one whom from everlasting to everlasting, they had this perfect union communion. And he sends him into this world. So he seeks us. The shepherd, you see, the shepherd goes and he seeks. And we're not told how long it took him. We're not told what he had to do to get to find him. But he, he finds, he finds that sheep. He finds that little stray sheep. And then what? He puts him on his shoulders as there was the way back then. And he brings him back. He finds that what was, which is lost and he brings him back to the fold. He rescues that sheep, that silly, sad and sorry sheep. He brings him back to himself. You see, not only does Jesus welcome sinners, not only is Jesus' attitude towards sinners one of 
welcome, one of receiving, as opposed to one of uh, contempt, as the Pharisees was. Not only does he seek, not only does he leave the splendor and glory of heaven, not only does he uh, uh, go and uh, make the effort, as it were, to go and to seek sad and silly, sorry, and sad sinners, the misery of sin, you see, those his creation that are wrecked by sin now, completely wrecked, like a mirror that has been smashed. Our image now isn't one of reflecting God, but is a broken image. We're broken in God's sight. Oh, not only does he seek, but he finds. Can we put it like this? God uses all of his resources. He uses his best resource. He uses his son himself. This great plan of redemption, in one sense, so simple, in one sense, so profound. Jesus Christ himself comes to seek and to save. And he finds us. He rescues us. He has the ability, as it were. Where's that sheep? Is it dangling off a rock? Has he got the means to rescue that sheep? Has he got the rope to bring that sheep back? Where are we? We're dangling over the edge. We're over the precipice of the abyss. We're under condemnation. We're under judgment. We're impounded by the bonds of sin. We're imprisoned. And what does Christ come? He comes. He finds where we are. He meets us where we are. And he smashes those gates of hell. He breaks the bondages of sin. He destroys the works of the devil. He rescues us. He pays the ransom price. He saves us. He brings us to himself. How? Where? When? At Calvary. At the cross. That's why Paul elsewhere says, I determined to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's the very means, that's the very mechanics, that's the very way of saving sinners. We can't save ourselves. We need to get that notion out of our head. The Pharisees were filled with that notion. Do you want to be like a Pharisee? Are they an attractive character to you today? They don't come across like that, do they? They smell. There's a stench of pride there. We don't want to be like them. Oh, you see, the problem is so much deeper. We're in such a worse position than they thought they were in. No, we are completely, utterly and helplessly and hopelessly lost. We are like a silly, sad and sorry sheep who has lost its way. Sheep aren't particularly bright creatures, are they? And one has gone off, absconded, and then it's lost. What do I do now? Have you ever had that feeling of being lost? That pit of panic. I had it recently trying to catch a ferry from Ireland and eventually I asked a fella in a white van and I was told that I was miles away and I missed the ferry. What a nightmare. Well, you see, friends, there's something worse than missing a ferry. You see, if we're lost and we remain lost, then there's an eternal absence from the pleasure of God. You see, man was created in order to enjoy God's pleasure, in order to enjoy God's presence. Man was created to have fellowship with God. That's what God's intentions for man was. It's the only soul-satisfying thing we know. To enjoy God. Oh, you see, if you've never enjoyed God, you're still under the wrath of God. Oh, to have that wrath hanging over you. And one day it is appointed for once, uh, once for man to die. And after that, the judgment. And if you are still lost, when you face Almighty God, then you will be forever and eternally lost. And you will never ever know what it is to enjoy a soul satisfaction of the presence and pleasure of God. You will never know what it is. You will have completely missed out to know what it is to enjoy that love. That love which is vast, overwhelming, boundless, free, a perfect love. You may know what it is to experience the love of a fellow man or a fellow woman. But that says nothing to experiencing the love of God. 
Oh, you see, he came to seek and he came to save. Man messed up. Christ put the job right. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he died. Where his enemies thought they'd got him. Where his enemies thought they'd overwhelmed him. Oh, you see, he was, it was his very humiliation. It was his very death upon the cross that was gaining the victory. That was the rescue plan all along, you see. From eternity, before the foundations of the world, God wasn't caught out by us falling into sin. God knew exactly what was going to happen. And in the mystery of his providence, he allowed it. Oh, but then you see, he has this plan to restore us to a better place than Adam was ever. You see, the, the sheep that is saved is in the clutches of the sun. The soul that is found and saved and brought from uh, death to spiritual life is now forever in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ, is forever secure in God, is forever in union with Him. Once saved, yes, always saved. The proof of that salvation is we go on with the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we keep on keeping on. If you learn to pass your test, you don't learn to drive, do you? You learn to pass your test. Now once you've passed your test, then you learn to drive, really. You come to the race. You become a Christian, you come to the race. That's just the start. That's not the finish, that's just the start. But there is a glorious finish. Or you see, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then, what's, he, what's, he, what's his attitude in the parable? Back to the parable, what's his attitude? Small thing, is it? This, this silly stray sheep, small thing to be saved? No. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. Rejoice. Oh, you see, this is one of the most misquoted verses in my Christian experience that I've misquoted. You see, I kept quoting it as there is rejoicing in it with the, the angels rejoicing, the, uh, the angels rejoice over one sinner repents. Something like that. And it's not that. Verse 10 I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What does that mean? It means God Himself rejoices. When one sinner repents, what does it mean to repent? It means to recognise and reckon on your position. It means for the mirror of the law to be clean and clear and to show you that you're in a desperate and hopeless and helpless situation. Have you looked into that mirror? Do you know where you're at? Do you think you're doing okay because you're here? Won't help you. Do you think you're doing okay because your mum and dad pray for you? Won't help you. Do you think you're doing okay because you're not like the great unwashed outdoors? Won't help you. Do you think you're doing okay because sometimes you say a prayer to God? Won't help you. No, you see the reality of our situation, friends. That's what we need, isn't it? We need reality. We need the truth. We need the truth. It's not, it's not easy to see, but we need the truth. The truth is this. We're lost. <laughs> We're in a hopeless and a helpless situation. We're lost, but now, stop looking at ourselves. What about him? But he isn't lost. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's never made a mistake. Almighty God has never been outwitted. He's God. He's pure. He's perfect. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. And we can trust him. Oh, you see the burden. You see those poor dabs who are out there every Saturday pushing their, peddling their nonsense because they think somehow God's going to be pleased with them. You see those people going on those pilgrimages. You hear of those characters who would walk up steps on their knees. Imagine the grit in your knees and the pain that that would bring. But they were doing it for a reason. Oh, what folly, what foolishness. Oh, no. You see, when we know our condition, what do we do? Save us. 
Save me, please. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And because of God's character, because of that demonstration of love, because He's shown it, because Christ has come to seek and save that which was lost, we know that He will never turn anyone away. Isn't it the marvel of the Gospel? The good news? There's bad news and there's good news today. The bad news is, without Christ, you're lost. Never mind how successful you are. Never mind how bright you are. Never mind what your pay packet is. Doesn't matter. You're lost. Oh, that's the bad news. But the good news is, <laughs> there's one who's ready to seek. There's one who's ready to find. And even now, even now, by the Holy Spirit, he can be speaking to you. Isn't that glorious? Even now, by the Holy Spirit, he can seek you out. He can bring you to himself. Oh, that preacher, that rough preacher I've never seen before, he doesn't know me, but all of a sudden, your conscience is being pricked. All of a sudden, you begin to think, this is true of me. All of a sudden, the busyness of life is, is, is ebbed away for 10 minutes in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a room. And all of a sudden, you begin to think, this is true. There's this ring of truth. And we have a choice, you see, you have a choice. What do you do? Do you ignore it? Do you put the blinkers on? Do you put the headphones on? Do you stick your fingers in your ear and sing to yourself and try and distract yourself? Or you see, by God's grace, I pray that you don't. But rather, you begin to listen. Listen, rather you begin to get a reality of where you're at, rather you begin to not take people's opinions of yourself for matter, but what is God's opinion of you? It doesn't matter if everybody votes for you for prime minister, it doesn't matter if everybody loves you to death, it doesn't matter, it matters what God thinks of you. And God says if you're not under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a foul and lost sinner. Oh, but does God do it? Does God save? Does he save out of a sense of duress? Does he, does he save uh, with uh, a sense of, um, uh, if I have to? No, you see, this comes through. In the presence of angels, there is rejoicing. Think of it this morning, friends. No matter what our condition, no matter what sin we've done, there's no sin that cannot be forgiven. You see, God's forgiveness outreaches our willingness to repent. It outruns us. You see, there's nowhere we can go to escape from God. But equally so, there's nowhere to go. There's no, there's no depths we can plunge to. That God isn't willing to bring us back and rescue us to himself. The glory of it, you see. When we begin to trust, not trust in ourselves, but trust in him. Oh, you see, the glory of it. He delights. He who for the joy that was set before him. There's Jesus Christ hanging upon a cross. There he is enduring the wrath of God. There he is. He's only ever known eternal communion and union. The intimacy of union with his Father. And for those three hours upon the cross, that great separation and that great fog of sin, that great weight of sin, eternally compressed, eternally distilled into those three hours. That unimaginable agony and torment of our sin being paid for. Him being his wrath, the wrath of God being born upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us who for the joy that was set before him. Who's the joy? We're that joy. He's come to rescue and to seek and to save that which was lost for what? In order to make us a body, in order to make us a people, in order to make us a holy edifice, in order that one day, on that day, when Jesus Christ will come again, this beautiful body of Christ, this beautiful bride of Christ will be presented for, before the groom. He shall see the travails of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus Christ hasn't sulkily, hasn't... Uh, in a resistant way coming to this. He's gone bounding into this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. And he loves you. If you leave with nothing else this morning, friends, listen to this. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. 
Despite your arrogance, despite your sin, despite your stench of pride, He loves you so much that He was willing to die for you. The Father loves you so much, He was willing to give His only begotten Son for us. What's our response? To repent. To turn. To acknowledge who we are before God and acknowledge who He is. We turn and we trust. What is faith? We believe. Do we believe what we hear? If you're honest with yourself, you know it's true. There can't be people who die for this year after year or people who spend their lives telling others about it if it's not true, but that's not it. In your heart, you know it's true. It's one thing to believe, but now what do we do? We act upon it. We go to him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. How do I go to him? Right here, right now. You call out, you cry out. What must I do to be saved? Believe on. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you're obedient to him. You say, not like Adam of old, my will. Not like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Not creature over the creator, but rather we humble ourselves and we say, you are the creator. You are the God. We are the creature. Not my will, but your will. Have you done that, friends? Can you say, I once was lost, but now I'm found? Can you say you're part of the fold, you're part of the body of Christ? Does this thrill your heart? Does this get the juices going when you begin to think, whoa, the best is yet to come. One day, we're going to give him all the glory, all the honour, all the praise, and we won't have this body of sin. We won't have the penalty presence or power of sin to afflict us. One day, we will be this new creation, better than Adam, better than new. We will be new in Christ, eternally secure. And one day, for all of eternity, we'll be able to worship him and magnify him. And that pleasure, that pleasure, that true happiness that comes alone from being in, in, um, in communion with God, we'll know that to an overflowing abundance, a joy unspeakable, full of glory. Does it do it for you? Or maybe you're thinking, well, the horse has bolted on that one. There was a time, perhaps, when I was younger, where it began to... And I've, I've said no that many times. Oh, friends, in God's mercy, in God's providence, you're here today for such a time as this. It's never too late. While there's life, there's hope. But on the other hand, if you're thinking, that's something for later on. Let me have my life first. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you now. Quite bluntly, don't be a fool. Don't mistake kindness. Don't mistake God's kindness for God's weakness. God isn't a God to be toyed with. God isn't a God to be played with. Elsewhere he tells us, you thought I was altogether like you. He's not. If God is speaking to you now, you respond. Jesus Christ commands. He doesn't ask nicely. He doesn't say if you feel like it. He commands. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen to that commandment today. Think of his character. If you come, he won't play with you. He'll receive you. He won't play hard to get. He'll receive you. Willingly. Gladly. He's shown it because he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you come, he'll embrace you. But you've got to come just as you are. Don't, cry and, don't try and bring him some good works. Because that's like bringing a pile of mud to somebody's house and offering it them as a thank you gift. It's worse. It's insulting. Come to him just as you are. And don't delay. Now. Now is the day of salvation. 
Don't harden your hearts. Don't play with God. Now is the day of salvation. And think of that sheep. What that sheep must have felt like being carried and all of a sudden this silly, sad and sorry sheep is being the centre of attention. Friends, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels today over one sinner who repents. Will you be that sinner? Will you be that silly, sad and sorry soul who for years perhaps has thought you could do it your way, for years perhaps has ignored God, but all of a sudden confronted with the reality, the truth of your situation, and you cry out to him, oh friends, God is more willing to save than you are to be saved. He's more willing to forgive than you are to ask for forgiveness. Why? Because he's God. What love. God is a God of love, of unimaginable, inexpressible, awesome, overflowing love, and he loves you.